This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yeah. Hey, you guys. Welcome to the Kern River Fly Shop Podcast. I'm your host, Guy Jeans. And on this podcast, I've got a great guy. His name is Conway Bowman. And uh, I know Conway from the Carp Throwdown down in San Diego, but I've also played music with him. Um, we've done some uh, little musical get-togethers. He's a, a really great drummer, which I'm going to talk to him about, and which a lot of you don't know. Um, Conway's known for pioneering fly fishing for Mako Sharks um, 27 years ago. And uh, he has fly fished all over the, the globe, from Thailand um, all the way to Alaska. And um, he is uh, actually regarded as one of the top fly fishing guides and anglers in the world. His pioneering of not only Mako sharks on the fly, but also West Coast fly fishing, uh, saltwater fly fishing, has been featured in many books. And he's the author of The Orvis Guide to Saltwater Fly Fishing, 101 Tips for the Absolute Beginner. And uh, we're going to get him on the phone here in a second. But um, also, I'm going I'm to ask him about you know, some of the TV shows that he does, he does the Ford Outfitters where he goes to all these different, uh, locations and goes, uh, goes fishing and hunting, which is, uh, really neat. But I'm going to talk to him about his, uh, his music when he was growing up in Southern California. Um, you know, he was a surfer. Um, we have a very similar parallel, uh, life, um, in that we, um, we're surfers, we were into music, and we became fly fishing guides. So we have that in common, but he's done some uh, really amazing things, and I want to talk to him about that. Let's see if we can get him on the phone. Conway. Guy, great hey. to hear from you, man. How you doing, man? I'm good, you know, just uh, living the dream in Encinitas, raising two boys and keeping my wife happy, you know? Awesome, man. <laughs> You know, I was, uh, I was, I was in the introductions, I was telling uh, folks that, um, you know, I, I think the most time that you and I have spent together is playing music. <laughs> That's, you know, you're right. Yeah. Because I, I don't think, I don't think we've ever fished together, but yeah, we no. definitely spent time playing music. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, we've spent, uh, a couple hours each, each time that we played together, um, just communicating through music. Right. Yeah, which is uh, which is really a great way to communicate, isn't it? It's, it's it interesting. Um, you know, musicians have such a have a really uh, connection that that if you're not a musician, you don't quite understand it. But um, 
the, the connection just through looking at somebody on stage or wherever you are and then communicating through the instrument you play. Uh-huh. It's, it, it's one of, it's one of the coolest things going. So yeah, I'm glad we get to do that. Well, you know, the only thing I could see um, when I'm playing with you is a big smile on your face. <laughs> oh, my, well, why not? I mean, yeah, why not? You're, you're, you are, you are a great player, Thanks, a great brother. singer and it's all, and it's always great to play with somebody who can actually play really well so that that's really that's really good well i want to get into that for sure um is you know your drumming roots and all that um during yeah. during this uh, podcast for sure um but uh what have you been doing lately i, I know that you um were training for was it a was it a decathlon or a marathon or something no, it was a it was a it, it was a half iron man they call oh, okay. it iron man 70.3 yeah and so i did that so i started training uh last july and it all cul- culminated on august 3rd this year you know just last month and i i completed the iron man so it was uh it was great it was uh it was it was a challenge but i I learned a lot about training, learned a lot about, you know, how far I can push myself and yeah. I'm going to do another one. In fact, I'm going to do a full Ironman next year. So. Dude, that's, um, that's yeah. incredible, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. At, at 56 years old, I mean, exactly. you know, what else am I going to do? Right. <laughs> so, so how, how, how are your, uh, how are your knees and, and like your, your body when you're running and doing all that is, are you good? Yeah, I'm I'm fine. You know, I was I was concerned. I have a I have a kind of a, a lower back issue, so that was a mm-hmm. concern going into it. And in fact, I hurt my back early on in my training, kind of set me back a couple of months, which is which was weird. But uh, other than that, you know, I, I finally figured out what was going on with my lower back, uh, and that was that was my big concern. Other than that, the knees, um, everything else held together really well, um, and I had I had very little pain. I had a, I had a really, I worked with a coach and yeah. he really di- dialed me in on, on, on training, on how to train properly. If I would have trained without a coach, I would have definitely hurt myself because I have a tendency to really push myself. Uh-huh. And, um, that's what happened to my back early on. I pushed myself too hard and my body just freaked out. It's like, why wow, this is way too much volume of training for your body to deal with. And then my weakest point is my lower back and it freaked out. It locked up. So what my coach did is he figured that out early on and, and he uh, created a really great training plan to where, you know, my training was very focused, very paced out. And then by the time I got to the race, I mean, I got to that race, I, I blew through it. And I, at the end, I could have, I could have run another, I probably could have run another 10 miles after that. I felt that good. Wow. And, but that's a testament to the coaches ability to train me a guy who had never done any triathlon or any sort of endurance sports, you know, ever, ever. And he got me across that finish line and, and got me across very strong. Wow. So, um, it was, it was killer. Yeah. And I feel great. So I what, mean, I dropped like 15 pounds. Yeah. What was, so what made you do that? So my, uh, I have a friend who's a filmer, uh, a, a videographer for Iron Man. So he goes around the world and he, and he, and he you know, he does all their short form content. And one of the sponsors for Ironman is Hoka, which is a shoe company. And so my buddy Pete, who's the filmer, um, had some Hoka athletes that he needed to film. So he came out to Lake Hodges that I manage and they filmed these runners running on this really nice lake road around Lake Hodges. Uh, so long story short, I was introduced to this guy, Michael O'Neill, who heads up the marketing division at Hoka. And Michael said, Hey, you know what? Um, you can have kind of an interesting story. You, you, you know, you're, you're, you're a dad, 
you're a husband, mm-hmm. you're a fishing guide. You also, you know, you are, you're a reservoir keeper. You manage this giant wetlands. Um, and he said that that story is interesting enough to where we would like to have you be one of our, um, uh, what would you call it? one of our, uh, characters in this, in this, uh, t- uh, this series we do called humans of Hoka. So they take people that have never done endurance athletics and they make them into an Ironman. And I'm like, Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'd love to do that. You know, just because I knew I'm like, yeah, this is, you know, yeah. this, this will never, this will never happen. And then COVID hit yeah. and I'm like, Oh, and I totally forgot about it. And then once COVID did lift, once COVID uh, lifted, the guy calls me and he goes, we really want you to do this. And I'm like, Oh shit. So anyway, I committed to it and, uh, yeah, that's, and that's how it came about. And they, they built a five part kind of a TV series out of it from, from the, my first day of training all the way to me crossing the finish line. And there's a lot of neat stuff woven into that story. Uh, because during that time, my, my father had passed away and, Mm -hmm. and what we figured, what we figured out was, um, this uh, series, this Ho- Humans of Hoka series, and and, my, and what I was doing was really focused around me having um, having a you know kind of a, a reckoning with my father's death. You know, basically, yeah. you know, coming to terms with that. And I, I tell you, it was amazing. We, my dad and I, fly fish together, and the place we really loved to fly fish uh, towards towards the latter part of his life was Lee's Ferry, mm-hmm. and we would go there every year, and uh, I, I, I mentioned that to Iron Man and Hoka that that was a place my father, I love to go. They said, well, let's go out there and film that. So we went out and we filmed at Lee's Ferry nice. on my dad's favorite spot. It was called four mile bar. And I'm telling you guy, we get there, the wind's blowing, it's, it's snowing. It's just crappy weather. It's windy. And the guy, Dave Foster's like, yeah, it's going to be tough to even get a fish. So we went out, we had one day, we went out and we, we parked the boat on this four mile bar got out and the, the skies opened up and in the third cast I had a fish and oh. that started the rest of the day of catching fish. And it was the most magical oh, um, cool. fishing experience I ever had. So, and my dad was there looking down on it and it was just unreal. And it was, so that's part of this Hoka, this humans of Hoka story. And it really, it, it kind of developed organically and it really, they did a wonderful job and, and it brings in my family you know, brings in my mom who's 94 years old. It brings in everybody that sort of has been a part of this journey. So it was really a great project and, um, really inspiring. So yeah, it was cool. That sounds awesome, man. Um, so what in, in an Ironman to tell, explain to me like what it is, is it like you're running and you're swimming and you're cycling? Yeah. So it's, it's a swim yeah. bike run. So okay. you're so in a half Ironman, so a full Ironman, Two mile swim. Uh-huh. It's a it's a hundred twenty mile hundred twenty one mile bike ride, and it's a full marathon, a twenty six mile run. Okay. So a half Ironman is half of that. One point two swim, fifty six mile bike ride, and a half marathon, which is still freaking insane to do that in, in in a six hour or seven hour period. Yeah, and uh-huh. and you have to you have you you have to do it within a certain amount of time, or you don't you know you don't you don't you, you don't finish the race on time, you know, you, yeah. what do they call it? Um, and it's not, not disqualified, but you know, you didn't finish on time, whatever, yeah. but yeah. So the pressure's on to finish that race at, at a, at a decent, at, at a decent time. Um, yeah. 
but it's a, it's a lot, man. It's crazy. I never, I, dude, I never even ran more than two miles in my life. I mean, I played sports, baseball yeah. and football, but you know, that's like interval training. You're doing sprints and all that stuff. Right. I mean, the first time I ran two miles, I'm like, holy moly. Then the first time I ran a half marathon in like two hours, I'm like, holy moly, I can actually do this. <laughs> and then, you know, but the interesting thing was I thought I was a good swimmer, you know, growing up being a surfer and a body surfer. Yeah. And, um, so my coach was a, is a master swim coach and he came out and he's like, man, you can't swim at all. <laughs> <laughs> really? And he goes, he goes, he goes, you're probably a really good surfer and a good body surfer, but dude, you are not an open water swimmer. And that was the part of the race that was really challenging for a lot of people. Open water, ocean swim, which a lot of triathlons aren't like that. You had to go through the surf at Oceanside Harbor and, and make a hard right turn and come back in the Harbor. Right. And right. he's like, you are not, you're not an open water swimmer. So, um, I'm like, Oh wow. And so within two hours he had me dialed in on the technique. And so from that moment on, I really, I really, uh, I, I really excelled at the open water swimming. And now, I mean, shoot, I'm swimming like, I'm swimming a mile and a half, mile and a half every, every Friday at Oceanside or I go to, you know, Mission Beach or I do, you know, La Jolla Cove. But yeah. I realized that, you know, ocean wa open water ocean swimming is really, really cool. And and learning how to do it correctly, I mean, it is the it is the coolest thing to be out there in the ocean, oh, you know, and you know, in the waves and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it was cool. But so those those are the things that I learned. I learned how to ocean open water swim. I, I figured out that I could actually run a half marathon. And then I was I was always kind of a cyclist. So mm -hmm. that came kind of easy, but the way you have to ride a bike at a, in a triathlon, it's like you have, it's more like a time trial, right? So I had to learn how to really keep my pace at a certain level. And also I had to learn how to climb a lot of hills because the Oceanside course where I did the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Ironman was a very hilly course. So I was during my weekly training, I was doing 5,000 feet of elevation every week, which is quite a bit. So, but I learned how to do all that stuff and I learned how to do it correctly. I learned how to dial in my diet. It yeah, had a lot to do with, with my success. And yeah, it was just, it was cool. I yeah. was going to, I was going to ask you about that. What are you eating? Like, um, like on those things, are you like eating while you're doing it? Or are you? Are yeah. You... So, um, during the race, um, I, you know, there's a lot of guys do liquid nutrition. So I worked with a company uh -huh. who mixed up a formula that was, uh, tailored to my body chemistry, right? A mm -hmm. certain amount of calories, a certain amount uh, of carbohydrates, and a certain amount of sodium. And it's a, it's a science. So they sat me down, they gave me a sweat test. Then I went, went out and they sent me all this product and I would just drink that throughout my training and I would figure out how my body would react to it. And they got it so dialed in that, so it would be like um, filling up your gas tank at elevation, right? You need a certain amount of octane to get you up the hill. Well, that's what they did. Uh -huh. And so my, my octane was, um, you know, a combination of carbohydrates, uh, calories and sodium, that kind of thing. You know, so they figured all that out to a science right down to the, like the, the, just the most like micro number. And that's what I put in my, my, uh, my water bottles. And it was perfect. I mean, I, I, I didn't feel spent all day. And what happens in a lot of these long distance triathlons is, you know, guys get out on the course and they forget that like they don't have their nutrition dialed in and then yeah. they completely fail. They can't get across the finish line. Um, and that's even pro athletes. Right. So I, I figured it out. Well, they figured it out for me. 
and it worked out really good. Now, the next one I do, who knows? I mean, my body chemistry will probably change, so they'll have to figure that out again. But there's a lot of science that goes into all of this that I had no idea. It's not like, hey, I'm going to go swim and bike and run, you know. It's not like that. And I, as I said, if I didn't have that training, I don't, I don't know how successful I would have been at doing it. You've seen those people that they get, they're like almost to the finish line and their body just is like shutting down. It's like, yeah, well that's, that's it. That's what happens with your yeah. nutrition. And, yeah. and there were people in my race completely getting gassed like that. I mean, absolutely falling, you know, crawling or sitting. Yeah. And here I am chugging along, but my coach said, look, here's the deal, dude. Those people blow up because they have two things going on. They don't pace and they don't have the proper nutrition. He goes, stick to your pace plan. I had a very specific pace plan. He said, don't go over that and stick to your nutrition. You've already done all the hard work in terms of building a foundation. Um, so just do that. And I did it. I got to the finish line and we got into the tent, you know, the finished tent and he comes over and he's got my whole race on his phone. And he goes, look, you did exactly what you're supposed to do. And look at the time you killed it. You absolutely killed it. And you feel good. Don't you? I'm like, yeah, he's like, I knew it. So wow. I think a lot of people get, get overzealous and they feel like they can, you know, they can, they can, you know, do better on the climbs or they can run faster. Yeah. But if they, if they, if they kind of go over any of those, those sort of disciplines and their body is not ready for it, then all of a sudden it's like a, it's like a domino effect. They're off on their nutrition and you can't catch up. Like if your sodium intake is too low, you can't really catch up, you know, and now you're just working against it. You're just, you're struggling to finish the race now. So, so that's the other thing I learned is, yeah. is that you, you have to really trust your coach, trust your body and listen to your body and understand that, you know, what's going in and, and how it affects your body. So I paid attention to all that stuff during training. I think a lot of people probably don't do that. They just go out and they, they go, 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 go. They're not listening to their body. They're not getting proper rest. Yeah. A lot of people will, will train really hard and then they keep training. But, you know, resting is really an important thing. So you don't push it hard every day. You yeah. take a full rest day, you kind of taper yourself, you build yourself up and then you taper yourself down, right? Uh -huh. So prior, uh, two weeks prior to my race, I was like doing a lot of volume. And then the one week before the race, I kind of, I mean, I reduced my volume. And so your body chemistry kind of, you're kind of building yourself up and then you're kind of stopping it, but your body is still like buzzing. And in fact, that last week before the race, I had so much energy, I couldn't sleep. I was so jacked up just on my, <laughs> my, my, my adrenaline and how my body was now producing this, you know, the, the energy and all that stuff. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I was crazy. And I, I'm, so I told my coach, I go, dude, I can't sleep because that's totally normal. And then I saw my weight drop. Like, I mean, it went from probably one, I don't know, one sixty down to like one fifty four. And then on race day, I was just like, I walked up the race and my coach hadn't seen me in, in like six months. He's like, he goes, Jesus, he goes, I can't, I, he goes, God, I mean, you had a dad bod the last time I saw you. Now you look like an MMA fighter. You know, yeah. it was like, so it was crazy. I had veins popping out all over my head. <laughs> it, was, it was nuts. But I was so jacked up for that race. It was like, I mean, like I said, I was ready to go another 10 miles after that. So, so. You, got, you got that but, like runner's high, they call it, you think? Oh, dude. Oh, yeah. I mean, is yeah, that that's totally a real did. thing? Oh, it's a total, it's a real thing. But, it's not only runner high, it's everything high. It's like, yeah. you're just like jacked up on the whole thing. Bike riding, what, you know, yeah. I was doing these hills. I was riding up this, like, it was a 13% grade, which is gnarly. And I was like, just flying up this thing and guys were walking their bikes up a bit, up it. Uh -huh. And I'm like, wow, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Wow. You know, these are like triathletes with, you know, the big tri bikes and stuff like that. So, 
but um yeah it was it was great and doing it at 56 years old was a was a big accomplishment too so totally man. um totally i i my field i mean there were i mean people that were you know way younger than me so yeah it's so cool. it felt great that's really cool. but i'm going to continue to do it i'm going to continue to do it it's, it's keeping me in good shape yeah and uh you know it's it's it, you know it's it, it's just a, it's really really a neat thing right on well let's talk about let's talk about your music because i know yeah. like i'm sure i'm i'm pretty sure that people have no idea that you're a really good drummer and uh so yeah let, thank you let, yeah let's talk about like um you know how you got into and uh, into music and drumming and like maybe some of the bands you played with and and that sort yeah. of thing so as a kid my mom was really into art music mm-hmm. theater um dance all that stuff and i had three sisters i was the only boy and so she always had my sisters into all that stuff. And one day I was fairly young. I said, Hey mom, can I get a drum set? She's like, sure. You can get a drum set. But you know, but I played, I played sports. Too. I was a baseball and I played, yeah. you know, all that. Stuff. And I, I, I want to say I was probably eight or nine. I can't remember. Anyway, I'm like, Hey mom, uh, can I get a drum set? She's like, sure, honey, I'll get you a drum set. Oh, nice. I'm like, good. And she goes, well, you have to do one thing for me. I'm like, what? You have, she goes, you have to give me three years of dance theater and singing i'm like what oh. i'm like shoot and my twin sister was a, is a classically trained singer she's got a phenomenal she's she's had a long career as a singer i'm like are you kidding me and she goes well how badly do you want the drum set i'm like okay i'll do it and i agreed to it so so i want to think i want to say i was like i was probably jackson's age my youngest so i was probably i was six or seven when this started Really? Because I remember I was the smallest kid in like the tap dance class. And dude, I was in there tap dancing. And every time <laughs> I come out of the tap dance class, she'd say, that's going to be really good for your drumming because you're basically doing drum patterns with your feet. And, and the tap instructor had a drum set in the back of the, uh, of the studio. And I remember I would go back there and she had this one tap instructor came in from L.A., and the guy's tap dancer, really good tap dancer. Guy named was Pat Rico. He was a legend back in the sixties, and he taught like Dean Martin how to tap dance. All this, anyway. So that's cool. I, I had I had mentioned to him that I, I wanted to be a drummer. He's like, really? Let's go back here. So this guy got on this little trap kit and absolutely shredded it. <laughs> I mean, he's doing. I'm like, and he even he even said he goes, tap dancing will make you a much better drummer because it'll dial your time in. It's all about timing. And I remember that. Anyway, long story short. Dude, I, I did three years of all that stuff, singing, gap dancing, drama. And uh-huh. at the end of that, at the end of that three years, I went to my mom. I go, mom, I did three years. She goes, okay, I'll get you a drum set. So that Saturday when we went out, she bought me a beautiful old Slingerland oh. uh, uh, cocktail kit. And that was it. It was black mother of pearl. And that was it. She kept her, her part of the bargain. I kept mine. So that's where it kind of started. And then, um, you know, I just, I just played drums, you know, I, I pretty much self-taught. I had a few lessons, but not, you know, not really. Uh-huh. Um, and I just started, you know, just playing around with some guys in the, in the, in the neighborhood. And then, uh, I didn't really start playing in bands until I was in college. And I, I, well, I actually it was high school. Yeah. Um, I had a couple buddies I grew up with. They went to St. Augustine high school. They were, you know, one, one guy was a bass player. His brother was a keyboardist and we just started a band. We uh-huh. play all the high school dances and stuff and parties. And then, so that band, you know, kind of evolved into a college band. And then like what, the, kind of, what kind of music? So, um, the, 
the stuff we were playing back in high school was like, uh, it was like, you know, English beat, um, <laughs> madness, all that, all that, you know, all that stuff, all yeah. that ska music. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, we played just anything that was on 91 X at that time, you know, yeah, yeah. kind of the hit. Uh-huh. And then, so when we, when we got into college, I met this guy who was really into like early Pink Floyd and uh-huh. he was, he was a great songwriter. He was a guitarist. And so Mike and I, Mike, the guy I grew, that I grew up with and played bass, um, this guy, John, the guitarist that we had met, wanted a, a bass and guitar player. And so that's, we met John and we were like, God, this guy's stuff is so interesting because it was all original music. Mm-hmm. And we, I was never really into Pink Floyd or anything like that. But then that guy pulled me into that. I'm like, wow, this is cool. So anyway, came up with John. We called the band Dark Globe. And, and it was me, Mike Jones, Scott Evans, and, and, uh, and John Geary. And we played from, it must have been 1988 until about 1993. We, wow. we were just, we recorded, I mean, we were relentless recorders. We put out, I don't know how many, like, we started with cassettes. We put out an yeah. album. Then we put out a couple of CDs. We toured. We did all kinds of stuff, and then around '93, it kind of it kind of petered out because it really wasn't going anywhere. We had some record label interest, um, but it was just it was just weird, you know. I part of me was you know music was great, but it got got kind of it got to be a drag because you know we were touring on our college breaks and just it was just <laughs> not it was just not I, I don't know it just for me it wasn't really that fun anymore, and I was not having fun. And yeah. this was sort of the tipping point for me. We're, uh, we're driving into Vancouver in a, this rented like little minivan, you know, whatever <laughs> minivans at that time. Yeah. And I'm looking out, we go over this bridge, I look out and there's a guy stay casting under this bridge. I'm like, dude, I mean, that's, I need to be doing that again because as a, as a kid, you know, I, my dad and I would fish and I would spend our summers in Idaho. So fly fishing, fly fishing and fishing were a big part of my life. But during that, that time when I was playing in the band, I didn't fish very much. And yeah. so I looked down at that guy casting, spay casting in this river. I'm like, you know what? I need to be doing that and really not this. because I'm not having a whole lot of fun with this anymore. So after that tour, the, I quit. I quit the band and got back. I got back to fishing at that point in earnest. And mm-hmm. I, I haven't stopped since. So. Yeah. I know that, that, uh, that touring is pretty brutal, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's brutal. And it's just, it's not glamorous. It's People have just, no idea. <laughs> they have no idea. They think, you yeah. know, they think it's, it, you know, unless you're next, a next level band, it's like, yeah. you know, and, and we were playing psychedelic grunge rock, you know, and yeah. it's not, I mean, you're all the people that are showing, going, showing up at the shows are, are totally weird. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are, there aren't any like hot chicks, you know, really. It's just like just a bunch of freaks. And I'm like, yeah, this is bizarre. I, I just, you know, I, I just, I mean, I remember playing in, uh, in Seattle and I can't remember the name of the club. I think it was club soda. I think that was like the big club there. And it was like, uh, it was the craziest thing. It was, it was a packed house and we were on a bill with, I think it was, this is when Soundgarden first started. This must've uh-huh. been 1980, 88 or 89. And they were on the bill. I mean, they were headlining bill. We were kind of up, up in the front of that bill. Yeah. And I was just like, God, this is a crazy scene. I mean, I was like, and I mean, people are just, I don't know. It was just weird. And, um, so it never really resonated that much with me. Um, yeah. I love the music. I didn't really like just the, I mean, I love playing on stage, but after that, getting off stage, being up late, all that shit. Man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I could, I, I honestly couldn't do that for a living. You know, um, it, it was just too, uh, it was just too weird. I, I just, 
it's not, I'm just not made for that sort of lifestyle, that gypsy kind of lifestyle. So yeah. I, I'm like a homebody, man. I just like hang, hanging out and, you know, uh, not being on a bus, you know, 250 <laughs> days a year and just, you know, being around a bunch of people that you really don't like, you know, so that's, that's basically it. You're hitting so, it right on the head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yep. yeah. I mean, uh, the whole thing too, for, for me nowadays is, um, you know, I like doing shows, but I like doing the early shows, you know, like the, the fairs, you know, yep. like the five to eight. <laughs> Dude, we're, I'm right there with you. So yeah. that, our, my band, dark Lord band, I mean, we're still together today. We play oh, four no shows a year. Oh, it's sweet. awesome. Oh yeah. And we play these great little clubs in San Diego. Oh, you gotta tell me, man. You gotta oh, tell I me. Will. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd love to come see you guys. That'd be so oh. sweet. <laughs> we're like the old guys, but we still totally. totally rock hard. But it's like we're like, uh, okay, we're not. We're, we're going to be the middle band. We're not closing out the show. You know, it's like you know, we're either open or we're in the middle. We're not doing the the, the last. You know, the last band that goes on at eleven or twelve because we're old. Yeah. You know, yeah. but uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's great. Yeah. But no, we we and we do we we write so many songs. In fact, tomorrow night we've got a we've got a rehearsal. We're, we're writing a whole bunch of new tunes. We're going to hopefully record and in September and October, we just love to play yeah. and we love to play together and we've been together so many years and it's, it's just great. We're very familiar with each other. We get along great. And that's a rarity in a band, you know, getting along with the guy. I mean, it's been since 1988 and we have never, we've never had ever, you know, so it's great. I mean, I mean, think about the Rolling Stones, you know, those bands that have been, you know, playing together for so long, you know, I mean, that's just a rarity, you know, like being able to, you know, hang with those dudes for that long. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those guys, you know, obviously they made it really big and I'm sure they, when they tour, they have their own separate buses or airplanes. They're not (laughs) hanging around each other. You know what I mean? It's a business now, buddy. They're making lots of money and they can deal with the personalities, but. Yeah. And considering what that band had gone through for so many years, no, I mean, I it's amazing. It's amazing. They're still getting up on stage. It really is. And you got to admire that, you know? Um, but yeah. I don't know. I mean, more power to them. Yeah. Well, I sure enjoy playing music with you, man. And, uh, I think that first year, at the, the carp throwdown, it was, uh, me, you and Bernard Yen. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, and then, uh, I think after that, um, Jim Solomon, um, Jim kinda, Solomon, yeah, yep. kind of yep. uh, stepped in as the guitarist and just jamming. I mean, all we do is just jam. Jim would be like, "Okay, we're playing in the key of B." <laughs> all right, which let's is do it. honestly, that's that, that's the way music should be—just yeah. organic and let it go. You know, I yeah. think I think um, some musicians are afraid to do that, and I, I think for me, it's, it's it's as a drummer, it's great to play with folks like that. Yeah, and. and and, and I mean, there's definitely a skill level that has to be there. Everybody has to know how to play to some degree, right? Yeah. But to be able to do that and have that morph into this great moment or these great moments, yeah. like we have had some great moments. I mean, I've looked yeah. over at you and Jim going, wow, this sounds really freaking good and everything. <laughs> right. So, you know, yeah. and I think um, some musicians get kind of uptight about, you know, it's got to be this, it's got to be that, we got to yeah. do this. And, and it's like, nah, man, just let it flow. It's like, it's like collective improvisation in jazz. You just let it go, man. Yeah, and then sure. really magical moments come out of that. And that's honestly how, you know, living life like that is good too. Just go totally. with love, you know, yeah. whatever, you know, yeah. don't have any expectations on anything. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions 
that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, uh, uh, Bernard was just up here. We just had a carp fest on Lake Isabella. And by the way, yeah, the the flats are are fishing incredible right now uh, for carp on Isabella. I just, I, I just talked to him today, and he said that. I'm like, yeah. oh my gosh! You so gotta come I, up, man. God, I got you up. know, I gotta make, I gotta make that, I gotta put that into the schedule because it's unbelievable I, right now. The, yeah, it, I got it's a, it's it's so it's so neat. It's a, it's it's a beautiful thing right now. I mean, I'm, I'm the Lake Isabella is so low, but they're starting to fill it up and it's filling up these like sandy flats and the flats are like oh, hundreds of yards long and it's it's you know they're knee deep it's really cool it's really oh cool. my god yeah and your venues and your venue up there is so perfect for that oh my yeah. god that the town you got you got everything right there and it's so great it's so great you're doing that it's so yeah. awesome Thanks, man. Yeah. And I got to get up. I got to because you you supported the carp throwdown for so many years, and I I feel I feel badly that I haven't been up to your event yet. Someday. Um, and I I know I know, and it's just you know life always gets in the way, and I always try to plan, but you know sometimes yeah. my plans just kind of go awry. But but thank you for doing that because I hear a lot of great positive oh. feedback about the fishery, the tournament, and the venue. I mean, dude, that, yeah. I mean it's awesome, it's, and it's great to keep that that going too. Oh, for sure. What, what's going on with the carp throwdown anyways? You know, I don't, you know, Al and I just sort of, I, I just, it was one of those things. I, I think it just became almost too much work, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess, I don't know. I mean, it just, it, I guess it kind of just ran its course. Yeah. Um, and honestly, the fishing hadn't been very good the last couple of years. And I think that had, had a lot to do with it as well. You know, the expectation was we're going to have this great, fishing every year and then it seems to sort of taper down the last couple of years so i think he and i decided it'll just take a break i mean it'll come back at some point i don't know at, at what level yeah. it might just be hey we're doing a carp throwdown everybody show up throw some money into a hat yeah. and we'll give away some prizes you yeah. know something like that yeah um but uh, but i'll tell you it was a it was a really magical event for the for the years that we ran it it was oh cool it was awesome my to favorite. see you and, and all all the folks and that and lake henshaw resort i mean it's Oh my God. It's so funky anyway. I mean, it's, I love it's, that place. I love, oh yeah. I, I love the fact that I actually get to compete. Like, you know, the one, I know. The, the one up here, I don't compete in, you know, but I, yeah. you know, but the, the one down there, I actually get to compete in and it's a blast. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, grass, yeah. Uh, yeah. carp on grasshoppers and ants and oh my God, it's just so cool. <laughs> it was cool. So, and those are the, those are the fond memories. So yeah. I think at some point we'll get it, get it back. But back to that point too, I never got to compete in, in the carp career. And I, cause I'm like, you, I don't compete in the events that, that I'm involved, that I'm involved in. Yeah. I just don't, I, I, I'd rather just kind of just watch people enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to come up and fish your event and actually do exactly <laughs> come up and fish it, man. Compete for sure. Yeah. yeah uh, Bernard, exactly. Bernard, um, him and uh, a guy named Lino, uh, they won it. 
So, um, oh, no joke. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. It was really cool. So, um, okay, let's let's uh, let's move on to um, let's talk about uh, what, what's going on with your Ford Outfitters. Are you still doing that? Oh no! So um, right before COVID, that they that show just ran its ran its course. I think uh-huh. we. I think we did, did six and a half seasons on that sucker. So that's a long run for TV. Dude, that's man. killer, man. Uh, oh yeah, it was great. So, yeah. um, and to be, and to be honest with you, I was kind of happy because, um, we, you know, it, we had just, we had Jackson, our youngest yeah. and I'm like, you know, I, I kind of want to, I kind of want to hang out with him because when we had Max, I, I had started, uh, I was hosting, um, I had just signed on with fly fishing the world, that other TV series. Yeah. And so I missed a lot of his kind of younger years because that show kept me going. I mean, I was going crazy for, I think, three or four years, tra- fishing everywhere. Yeah, traveling, and I huh? missed, I, I, Yeah, and I missed a lot of his uh, younger years. So with Jackson, I said, you know what? I want to be here for him, and, and TV is not that important because I've, yeah. I've gotten to do everything I've ever wanted to do in TV. I got to travel. I got yeah. to work with the great companies. And I'm like, yeah, it's no big deal. Let somebody else do it. Nice. Um, but – but for, you know, uh, ironically at that point, they said, yeah, I mean, a six and a half year runs great. So we're going to, we've, we've sold as many F one fifties as, as we can with the show. We're done. <laughs> yeah. And we're like, great. And they sold a shit pot load of trucks because of that show. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. awesome. And that's the reason why they kept it going. Believe me, if Ford wasn't selling trucks, that thing wouldn't have lasted a freaking year. I be- yeah. believe me. But every year, um, so I co-hosted with a guy named Fred Eichler, who was a bow hunter. Every yeah. year we would get together at the beginning of the year for an episode. And he and I would laugh. We were like, can you believe it? They're getting, they're renewing our contract again <laughs> because <laughs> we, we, we just couldn't believe a show like that would sell trucks, And it did. So how awesome is that? I mean, uh, dude, I mean, I, I was, I, I'm totally fulfilled. If I never get in front of another TV camera again, I am happy because <laughs> I, I, done I've, <laughs> I've done it. I've done it. I've been there and now I can just kind of relax. It's not like, you know, it's no big deal, but I had a great opportunity. So, and that's what it was a lot of luck and a lot of opportunity that I, that I was fortunate to, uh, to participate in. So cool. So what most people know you for is, um, you know, your Mako shark, um, fishing and, and I want to get into that for sure. So, um, you know, I, I, how did you get into that? How did you get into, Mako shark fishing. I mean, and I know you live down in that zone, you know, where they're at and that sort of thing, but how did that all go down where you, I'm going to start guiding these Makos. I mean, how did that, how did that happen? Yeah. So, um, you know, just living down here, I always had a boat. From the time I was 16, I always had a boat. So I had a 16 foot aluminum and I had an 18 or 17 foot aluminum. And I would always go off outside the jetty and fish the kelp. And I, my dad was a saltwater fly fisherman back in the sixties and seventies. And, um, I had, you know, I had, you know, I had some old fly fishing equipment anyway, but, um, one, one thing I, I got hooked on, um, Mako's is because I had a buddy who was a commercial fisherman and he wanted to learn how to fly fish. And so I took him out and I taught him how to cast. He goes, dude, I'm going to take you out and, and I'm going to, um, take you to some of my, my really kind of secret calico spots, Point Loma. And I want you to throw that fly rod on. So we went out there and we were full bendo on like big giant calicos right under the lighthouse. It was insane. I mean, we're in an aluminum boat and he's like, he's got it in reverse, keeping me out of the boilers, but I'm hooking up these big giant calicos. And this is back in, God, when this is back in the, the mid eighties, something like that. Anyway. 
So we caught Barracuda, Bonita, and so he and I would go out once a week. And one day he said, man, you ought to try that, that fly rod on a mako shark because those things, you know, they're up on the surface, and I guarantee you they'll hit a fly. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. I wasn't into sharks at that time. So anyway, so I continued to kind of, you know, fly fish in my little skiff and blah, blah, blah. And uh, there was a book written by the Orvis company called Salt, well, I think it was called uh, The Guide to Saltwater Fly Fishing, written by Nick Kurtzian, who's a great yeah. guy, yeah, yeah. M- massive, massive on the West Coast. Yeah. And he had a chapter on fly fishing for sharks. And one of the sub-chapters was catching mako sharks on the fly. And I read that. I'm like, oh, my God. And he said something like, this is the only West Coast game fish that you can sight fish to that will jump out of the water. I'm like, what? So <laughs> anyway, I, 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 so I, that stuck in my head. And I started fly fishing for blue sharks. So I had this 17-foot aluminum. I went off. Dude, I took that thing 15 miles offshore to look for blue sharks, all right? But I never found it. I never found any any makos. And yeah. so Nick used to go to all these these fly fishing shows up and down the coast. Remember those things? Like yeah, they weren't yeah. Fred Hall shows. They were. Uh, oh, anyway, you remember those shows? Yeah. And I would I would show up, uh, and I the thing is back then I would like write letters to him. You know, uh, uh, Nick, dear Mister Kutcher, and I Kutcher and I read your book, and I would love some help on getting mako sharks. Anyway, so I would be the guy at the show hanging out of this booth. Hey, uh, Mr. Cuccio, can you help me out with you? And yeah. so he would tell you, he's like, yeah, yeah, anyway, like, shit. He goes, heck, I would just go out in the shipping lanes off Long Beach and just set a chump slick and they'd, they'd show up. And so, um, um, anyway, so he and I became really, really good friends. I, but I was that nerd that was hanging around trying to get information out of him. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, I figured out by another commercial fishing buddy of mine, he saw me out fly fishing blue sharks one day and he's like, he motors over. He's like, what are you doing Conway? I'm like, I'm fly fishing for sharks. He's like, what do you catch? I go, I'm, I'm getting, getting blue sharks. He's like, really? He goes, well, you know, I just got a nice Mako over here. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I go about four miles down the beach and you know, there's a current break. So I went down there, set a chump slick and immediately I had like an 80 pound Mako around the boat. I'm like, what the, and I had no idea what to do. Yeah. And it's circling the boat. I'm like, Oh my, it's totally different than a blue shark. Way more aggressive. I didn't yeah. even catch it. I just let it swim by. I was yeah. so freaked out. I'm like, oh, my God. So I go back to the dock, and I see the same commercial fisherman. He's, and as I'm pulling up, he's like, you see, see any makos? I go, yeah, Lou, I saw this really, really nice one. He goes, did you catch it? He goes, I said, no, I was kind of too afraid to throw at it. He goes, good <laughs> idea, because your boat's kind of small. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. so this my buddy Lou, uh, Lou Fedor, who's an awesome Awesome guy, great commercial fisherman, who ironically became a really great fly fishing guy down here. Um, got me dialed in. And long story short, um, I got my first Mako after uh, trying to catch him for three years. And then after that, I kind of figured out the game plan with Lou's help. You know, moon phase, tide, season. When yeah. I was catching all those blue sharks early on, I was fishing them in the winter and spring. Okay, uh-huh. Makos are here in the summer. So yeah. I figured all that out, figured out where to go. And once I got that going and I kept very detailed logs as I do today, I have every single Mako I've ever caught documented. And, and I, I, I document moon phase, tide, water temp, food items, you know, conditions, birds, all that. And I figured out there's a very distinct pattern when these things show up, kind of like a tarpon migration in Florida. They Mm -hmm. come up, they hang out and then they move. And so what you're doing is what I'm doing is I'm intersecting them as they're coming up and coming back. And Hmm. so since, since probably I really started fishing them in earnest in probably the mid-90s, 95. Yeah. It's, and that's all I've been doing. 
and it's really amazing. It's an amazing fishery. And you and I, you went out with me. I got to um, I got to tell the story. Can for, I tell the story? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so um, I think you had given um, some some club a uh, uh, you know a raffle trip or something like that, and my friend Chiaki um, Harami is the one who, um, won it. And he said, Hey, you want to go? And I'm like, absolutely. So that was my first time meeting you for one. And then we went out and, uh, we cruise out. I think we were off La Jolla or something Yeah. and we're hanging out out there. And you got that. The first thing you said, I got some great chum, man. I got some great chum. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, cool, man. And so we get out there, you know, we cruise out there and we're, we're, me and you are like, hitting it off like right right away um just talking about fishing or whatever and so we get out there and um you start just hammering this chum line just this bucket and you're just you know i'm like wow this you know getting some getting some blood out there (laughs) and so you're you're, you're chumming up this stuff i don't you know we're we're out there you know exactly where we're at or whatever but i don't know maybe maybe an hour goes by or something like that and me and you are just bsing on the back of the boat and we're just talking and everything. And then you, you say to me, guy, look at, look at, look at, up, uh, look behind the boat. And I'm like, whoa. And this fin comes up in the chum line <laughs> and you, and I mean, that was the, that was cool in itself. Right. And then, yeah. and then you say, um, I, I think you said grab the 13 weight. Is that right? Or was yeah, it the but, 15 weight? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I, it, it was probably, uh, I don't know. You said, you said grab, I think it was a 13 waiter. I, I don't know. Yeah. Something like that. Anyway. And, um, it's a, it's, it looks like it's about 115 pounds or something. And I'm like, what? And, yeah. and so you're, you're looking at it and it, and that fish like looked at me before I caught it. Like it, it went, yeah. it went around the boat and it eyeball looked up at me and I'm like, no way. <laughs> you know, yep. it's just tripping on that thing. And then it went around uh, the boat and then you got like a, you got like a teaser rod and you threw yeah. that you were, it doesn't have a hook on it. I think. Yeah. So it's like, a, it's a Marlin skirt, an orange Marlin skirt. Yeah. And I, I stuff a belly, a, a finita belly strip in there. So your yeah. bait, I bait and switch them. So when that yeah. sh- shark came in, he was just kind of checking you out, yeah. but we had to turn his light his his predatory light switch on. Yeah. So that's what that teaser does. They see it, they chase after it. Yeah. And I pull it away from them. Now they're pissed and now they want to attack. Yeah. So then I had, you know, the fly, I think was like a big red giant streamer of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And did you have wire on that too? Like, was it a wire? I did. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Three wire. and a half foot piece of wire. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and so you're like teasing this thing, you know, throwing, throwing back in the chum line and, um, and then it starts circling the boat again and then you're all throw it, throw it. And, you know, basically like, you know, uh, throwing like a woolly bugger, you know, you just throw it out there and then you strip it. And this thing came up and ate it like a trout. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, you know, like a brown trout rising on a hopper. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It came up and ate it. And then, and then just chaos after that. And then, um, like, I think you even started the boat and we chased it. And then oh, I, yeah. when I was, when I was like reeling it, I was looking like, you know, South and then the thing like jumped to do the West or something like so, I still have that photo, by the way, I, I do? still have the photo of you and Chiaki. Yes. And I yeah. need to dig that up for you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so this thing like jumps, I mean, how, how high do they jump? I mean, 20 feet. Yeah. yeah. Twice I, their body length. Yeah. yeah. And I wasn't even like looking in the right direction. The thing was like way over, like somewhere oh, you, else. You, you didn't see it. Oh, yeah. but I, I mean, I, w- I saw it jump, but I mean, I was looking in the wrong direction, you know, like I thought my line was, yeah. you know, it's it south and it jumped over at the west 
And then you turned yeah. and, and then, uh, and then I brought it, I was getting it close to the boat and this was what was really trippy was you were all, um, guy, get that thing in, man. There's another, there's another shark that's going to eat that one. <laughs> yep. Oh and I, yeah. And I was like, um, and I think mine was like, you know, 150 pounds or something. I don't know. Uh-huh. Something like that. And you're all, this one's like 300. It's going to eat this one. Get it off. And you had this, <laughs> yep. you had this big, uh, catch and release tool that you had, you know, and I was trying to get it in. And so you could release that fish so it wouldn't get eaten, you know? Um, yep. but what an experience, man. It was so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the make a shark on a fly thing is like I said, it's unique. Yeah. It's not everybody's cup of tea, you know, cause you, you some, some guys, they're, they're not into the chumming thing and whatever, you know, that's fine. But yeah. it is the only opportunity that, that somebody can really sight fish to a fish mm-hmm. and watch the take and, and have this fish jump 20 feet out of the water. You know, and, and catch a big fish. Yeah. Uh, by and large, these fish are anywhere from 40 to 100 pounds. And I mean, yeah. last year we got one of the boat that was probably, probably 600 or six or bigger. Yeah, that's huge. a monster. So, oh, we've been seeing ma- massive fish here the last five years. I mean, big ones where it's like, yeah, you don't want to cast to that. That's too big. Um, but it, it's a great opportunity. And the other thing is, that far offshore oh my god uh, it's a quick it's we, a quick run we, and we, yeah, could, we, we could see the shore like we could see the shore right. from where we were at that was crazy that's right so yeah. there's a lot of bang for the buck for folks and there's not many places in the world that you can catch a large game fish on a fly rod and have it jump i mean it's oh just, my you know god. unless you go to guatemala or you go you know or, or you go to florida um but no it they are a wonderful game fish and um they are they're, they they have defined my sort of wh- whatever I am in fishing. They've defined it. I'm very appreciative of it. That's why I don't kill them. Yeah. I, I release them all. I had a guy offer me so much money once. I mean, I w- my buddy said, you're a <laughs> fool not to take that money because he wanted to kill it for the record book. And I said, I'm not doing it. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I would not do it because I honor those fish so much. Nobody, you couldn't pay me enough money to do that. You yeah. know? And that's, that's fact. You know, that's fact. So do these fish migrate? Is that what's going on? I mean, yeah, 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 they do, sir. I think there's a handful that hang around all year, but Uh you get the big push in May. They come up from the south. They follow the bluefin tuna. Okay. And and when the bluefin come offshore, all of a sudden the makos are here. Uh Uh, They'll hover around offshore until mid-May, and then late May, early June, they come right in on the beach. And then we have really great fishing all the way through uh, July. And then in, in August, they kind of migrate up, up north and still some, some hang around. I mean, you can still get a fair amount in August down here, but they're not big fish. Yeah. And then you have an, then we have a, a, a sort of a, an October wave that, that are moving down south. So they, they'll go, come up north, they'll be up north, and they'll swing back down south close to, the, close to shore, and then they're off to Mexico or wherever they go after that. So, Interesting. so it's a very distinct pattern. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like, the, it's kind of like a, a tarpon migration. It's pretty yeah. cool. What's uh What's the most interesting thing that you've seen come into your chum line? Oh man, oh, I've had well, I mean, great whites. I've had them come into my chum line. Have you had some good size uh, ones come in? Yeah. Oh yeah. Jeez, I had one circling the boat. It was eighteen feet long. It was bigger than my boat. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I touched it with my rod. I'm like poking it. It's just kind of looking at me. Was, was he crazy? Was and, he, he was looking and, at and, you. Yes, and I was in thirty feet of water. I was inside the kelp at North Bird Rock, and there were guys surfing fifty yards from me. Wow. I could hear him talking. And then I, I, I yelled at him. I go, Hey guy, I got a great guys. I got a great white here. They're like, Oh shit. And they all paddled in. <laughs> but it was, it was 
freaking massive. Yeah. Um, I've had sore, I've had big swordfish come through my slick. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I just interesting I, stuff, man. I, just interesting stuff. But but you know, as I said in recent years, it's been giant makos. I mean, I had two makos last year that were well over a thousand pounds come through. Jesus. And you you think you think those are great whites, but when you go when you get a close look at them, it's like holy moly! They're you know they're just it's hard to explain, and they're fast. They come through and they're they're cruising. Yeah. They're cruising at like 10 knots, just with it blown right by the boat. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I mean, that, that's the, interesting. Those fish are like, it, it looks, I mean, when you look at one, when I was, when I, the one I caught, when I was looking at it, it just looks like it's just built for speed. I mean, the mm-hmm. way, the way that they, or the way that they're shaped, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's unbelievable. Like their fins. They, and, they, yeah. They're totally hydrodynamic, man. Exactly. And they are yeah. fast. 40, mile, 40 miles an hour in the water. Could you imagine a thousand pounds fish swimming 40 miles an hour? I know. That's, that's, that's exactly what they do. They're insane. And people always say, like, great whites are so this and that. I'm like, dude, I would not. I would if I, if I were on a sinking boat and I had a great white shark on the starboard side and I had a mako on the port side, I would jump on the jump off the starboard side before I would even get in the water with a mako that big really? because they are so. Oh man, dude, they are so aggressive. And so mean. They're, oh, they're really? way meaner than a great white. Oh yeah, way meaner. Interesting. Yeah, they just have a. They're 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 kind of thuggish. They're just they're cat like and they're thuggish, and that freaks me out. Sometimes they'll come up on the boat and all of a sudden they just kind of appear. It's like oh gee, you know, it's like and you get chills down your spine. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm fishing them also out of a small boat, a bay boat. Right. And those big ones roll up on the boat, and they love the. I think they really love the, the small boat because it's not a big threat to them. Yeah, big big makos. A lot of times with on boats that are like big sport fishers, they come in really deep because of the the sport fisher's profile is very high, so it's kind of a threat to them. My boat is kind of they probably think it's like like a like a seal or something. I don't know, or I, they think it's maybe it's a food item, and it, it, <laughs> it's not looking down on them, yeah. so they come right in. I mean, it, it's no joke. It's like boom, there they are. And I had I had a guy last year. A big one came in, and he's like, dude, I can't even cast that. And the guy sat down. He would not get up. He was so freaked out. He sat on the cooler, and, and he was staring off into space. He wouldn't even look at the fish. Whoa. And, his, yeah, it was it was crazy. And that was serious. It was a seriously big fish, though. Yeah. But I get it, though. They're, they're intimidating, man. And if, you, if all you've caught, you know, if you, haven't, if you haven't encountered a big creature like that, whether it's, you know, whether it's a bear or a, a big moose or an elk, yeah. You know, you don't quite understand what what you're looking at. And and when they're three feet from you, it's like, yeah. holy, yeah. Yeah. So I, I always sort of liken it to running across a grizzly bear in the forest, but he's mm-hmm. three feet away. That's just basically what it is. What's so, so. Fun, what's so amazing, too, and kind of interesting is that you're so comfortable out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're very, yeah, you're very, you're very, very comfortable um, when those sharks well, are around the boat. <laughs> That, that's 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 what that's what my I'm 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 projecting, but inside I'm like going, oh shit, you know. I mean, I <laughs> I I'm I have the three three C's, uh-huh. calm, cool, collected, always, yeah. and, and that's just. Be, but inside I'm going, whoa, this could get gnarly. And <laughs> to be honest with you, to be on, I've had a couple of close calls over the last couple of years where uh, a couple of those big makos jumped very close to the boat, really? and it could have gone it could have gone south really quickly. But thank God it didn't. And I've learned a lot of things uh, targeting these larger makos because that's what we're seeing now. And on any given day, you could see a 600-pound mako at the boat. I mean, that's no joke. Um, 
So I've had to kind of, I've had to, I've had to kind of um, reevaluate my, my, my game, how to cast to these fish, make sure the angler can cast yeah. these big flies and these big rods, at least 30 feet and do not have that shark take the fly coming towards the boat. They need to be taking it going away from the boat. And mm-hmm. if the angler can't get that together, the angler cannot cast because it's very dangerous. Yeah. Once that fish is hooked, you don't set the hook. You let them grab it and run away, swim away from the boat. Once the fish is 100 feet from the boat, then you can set the hook. Okay. As long as the fish is moving away. If right. the fish comes back towards the boat, don't do anything. Just let them, you know, yeah. because if you set that hook and that shark's coming back to the boat, there's a good chance boat. he's going to jump in the boat. And all those big makos, every one of them. I know. Jump. It's crazy. 800 pounds coming up and landing on the water. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, and it, it's crazy. So I've had to reevaluate and my plan and my sort of focus on those fish and how to approach them. And it's different than small ones. I mean, mm-hmm. but it's like, dude, it's grizzly bear hunting with a, with a pea gun. It really is. You know, yeah. you kind of have to, you know, you do not want to get one of those things anywhere in the boat or anywhere near landing on the boat. So, yeah, very cool, man. So what, whatever, um, whatever happened to, uh, the podcast you were doing, you know, the, uh, mm. the barbless one, is that not happening yeah. anymore? No, you know, uh, COVID hit and things uh-huh. kind of went, I think COVID really wrecked it. You know, oh, okay. um, we're, you know, we're still going to do it, but it's just, you know, life gets in the way. Kids right. and baseball and karate, yeah. you know, uh, right, just right. life gets in the way. Cool. And COVID was, was an opportunity because we were kind of, we were locked down. But then, you know, the Barbells podcast was really focused on getting uh, sponsorship dollars. Yeah. And that, those just, that stuff just was not coming in because of COVID. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but I, I, my hope is at some point start some sort of podcast. But yeah, like man. I said, you know, life just kind of, you know, just gets in the way, and eventually I'll I'll get to it, or Michelle and I will get to it. Yeah. But you know what? Honestly, just just doing your podcast is great. I mean, that that's I I, I honestly I'd rather be the guy answering the questions than asking him. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. One <laughs> one uh, one last question I want to ask you, and yeah. um is uh you know what's it like to write a book you wrote the book the orvis guide to saltwater fly fishing and yeah, um yeah. you know what what is that like is it does it take a long time is it a lot of work i mean how does that work how does that work yeah it's it's the equivalent of training for an iron man <laughs> to be not only but you're <laughs> not crazy. running it's no, crazy but yeah i bet Dude, it's freaking nuts yeah i mean you you the same principles go into writing a book as as training for a, a triathlon you have to be disciplined. You have to write every day. You have to, you have to be organized. Yeah. You have to organize not only your words, but you know, you have to write, you have to rewrite, you have to rewrite again. Yeah. You have to trust your editors, which is your coach. Yep. Uh, you also have to figure out your, your artwork, your pictures, mm-hmm. all that combined. And it, it's a long, arduous process. So, yeah. uh, but once you know, the final product comes out, you're like, okay, cool. I'm an author. And exactly. I was fortunate that Orvis, Orvis got behind it and it's still selling, you know? I just got my check the other day and it was like for 50 yeah. bucks. How, yeah. awesome, how awesome is that? Yeah. <laughs> Hell a $50 yeah. check. Okay. Yeah, anyway, but it's awesome. you don't make a lot of money, but you know what? You, you actually get to, to do something for fly anglers that are getting into the sport. You know, exactly. Uh, my book was the absolute, uh, it was a hundred tips for the absolute beginning saltwater fly angler. Perfect. There yeah. you go. That's what I've learned from all the people that have helped me out. Yep. Here you go. Yeah. And, and I do occasionally I get people who write me and say, hey, it was a really good book. It was simple. 
You didn't get into all the minutia of fly fishing and all that stuff, which I'm not really good at anyway. Yeah. Uh, I just, I, I give them the basic tips. Hey, do this, this, and this, and you'll be successful. And Super that's important. It. And, and, th- and that's what it is. You know, make things simple for people to understand, and then they'll, they'll, they'll grasp it much more easily. And then once they have that knowledge base, they, then they can go out and become, have a more sophisticated approach to fly fishing or whatever they're doing. Yeah. Um, I think people get overwhelmed with all the stuff in fly fishing and they get too deep into the weeds right off the bat. And I think that, you know, um, it's a much easier process just to explain things in very basic terms and take things in little chunks mm-hmm. and then boom, next thing you know, they're out exactly. you know, making amazing casts and, you know, catching all kinds of fish. So, yeah. Do you have any plans to do any other books at all? You know, I've got a couple that are kind of just sitting on my computer. Yeah, I'm going to definitely do one on fly fishing for makeup. That's going to be oh, that's going to be more of a, a, a table, a, like a coffee table book, yeah, but with some really great stories. It's going to yeah. be not not heavy on tips and techniques, but just some wonderful stories and the people that I've met over the years. Yeah. Uh, and then I've got a redfish book that I've been working on for God, I don't know how long, but it's it's almost done. Uh-huh. Um, and because I, I really got into redfishing back in the early 2000s and I love it. It's really great. Yeah. So, but once again, you know, um, it's discipline, it's getting all the, the right words on the paper and organizing them. And I, I'm not working with an editor on, on that book. So I'm, I'm self editing that. So, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> but yeah, it, it, I, I would love to write that book. And I, I mean, I've been very fortunate to be, to fish many, many places for many, many different types of fish and being on the bow of the boat, uh, uh, has given me an interesting perspective on how I approach fish, but mm-hmm. then also listening to all the guys that I've fished with. Mm-hmm. So melding those ideas together. Right. So whether it's tarpon or, or permit or bonefish or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think I could, I could write some really interesting, uh, you know, insights to that. I not, mean, not yeah. the, not the word of God stuff, but just stuff that, that I've learned, you know? So, yeah. I like your, uh, I like your quote that says, uh, I, I, you, you posted this one time and you said, um, guide, not God. Yeah, that's right. I, I love and that, that sticker's on that. my boat. <laughs> Is it? I've got I love that sticker that. on my boat. I need one guide, of those. Guide, not God. <laughs> I, I'll make you one. Dude, send me your, send me some artwork. I'll make you one. Al right. you made those for me. They're awesome. Oh, they are. But no, I'm, and yeah. you know what it does when I guide, it breaks down a lot of like, uh, expectations right off the bat. Yeah. People will get on the boat and they see that and they laugh. And that's what I want them to do. Yeah. Because they got to understand, Hey, at the end of the day, I'm just a person. I'm not God. Yeah. I can only do what I can do. I can work hard for you for 12 hours a day. Yeah. But if that shark doesn't show up, I'm only human. So, yeah. and I think a lot of people that hire guides think that the guide is a God and he's going to miraculously produce fish for them. Yeah. And that just is not the case. So, yeah, but I'll, 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 I'll make you up some of those. They're awesome. Dude, those are good. I love it. <laughs> I love yeah. that. I love that saying. Okay. Last question. Uh, you are, you have one day to fish. And, um, one last day to fish, where would you go and who would you go with? Oh boy. Well, I would go with my wife. Nice. Right. That's what that would be my first guess. Yeah. And I would take her or we would go to, let me think here. We would go to Campeche and catch baby carbon because she loves that. Is that right? And yep. Yep. Really? Okay. I'm going to put that in yeah, my, because she put that in my notes. <laughs> yep. Campeche. 
because because so so fishing to me uh-huh. is more than just coming tight on fish. It's the sure. whole experience and the, yeah. and the memory. Yeah. Right, catching the fish is always just kind of the icing on the cake. It, it, it's it, it's what takes place from the from the time I, the time you get to the hotel till you know it's it's yeah. all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the the great dinners you had, the mm-hmm. great conversations you have with friends. Yeah. Um. The, you know, the one night you go out, you get totally shit pissed drunk. You know, on tequila, <laughs> or you know, you just have it. You know, you, those are and, and the friendships you build on those trips. Yeah. That's what's most important to me. Catching the fish. Hey, that's cool. But you know, I love watching people catch fish and I love watching my wife catch fish. Nice. It is the most awesome thing. So yeah, Campeche with Michelle. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I, I'd love, I'd love to go. I love it. That's so cool, man. Yeah. Conway, it's been, uh, it's been amazing. It's I, I can't believe it's already been an hour, man. It goes I by can't fast. believe that either. It goes by so fast. We have to do this again, huh? I'd love to guy. And thank you so much. And I love you, man. Yeah, I love you, brother. And let's get together, play some music, go fishing, all that kind of stuff. All of the above. Yeah, for sure. I'm ready. All right. All right. Conway Bowman, peace, brother. See you, man. Later. Later. 